The views expressed in this interview are those of the individuals and do not reflect the official policy or position of the U.S. government, the Department of Defense, the U.S. Navy, or the Naval Postgraduate School. Welcome to the Trident Room, brewer of stout conversation, unfiltered and on tap. On today's episode, Trident Room host Marcus Antonellis sits down with John Hammerer. Oh, no. no, that was that was oh, awesome. No, no, program. That was great. I mean, I'm I, I know I think I think I'm the newest. Guy yes, you are. Team. Congratulations. So, yeah, so I, I I'm really glad. It's nice <laughs> to hear all these wonderful things about the team I just recently joined. Yeah. So and I'm glad to be a part of it. Like I said, I participated in my first seminar this past week, and I think it was wonderful. We talked a lot about uh, the history of uh, ballistic missile defense um, and uh, anti-ballistic missile weapons. And I thought, uh, like we were talking about earlier, I thought it was just incredibly interesting how you have this, uh, you look at the time period right after World War II and you have a couple of things starting. You have the space race starting, you have the Cold War starting, and you have all these new weapon systems coming online, mostly ballistic missiles and then anti-ballistic missiles coming online. And I just thought it was, it's amazing how you, you cannot talk about one of those things without talking about the other three. You can't talk about the space race without talking about ballistic missiles, without talking about the Cold War, without talking about anti-ballistic missiles. And it's just this cyclical back and forth. One thing develops one thing, and then the other three follow suit. There's a development in space. Well, ballistic missiles and anti-ballistic missiles, they can learn something from that, and they do. And we have this time period where just you have the four things playing off each other, and I think that lent itself very well to the, the rapidity with which we saw technology develop in that time period, ultimately resulting in first satellite in space, then first person in space, then first person to be on the moon, and all these other uh, success, successful human achievements, um, ultimately drawn by this, uh, brought upon by this cyclical, sort of this revolving door of principles. Yeah, um, yeah. And, I, and I, I really, really enjoyed that seminar. And it was because, again, that, that was a couple of things that I like to geek out on, which is space and missiles, namely ballistic missiles, which, I, which like we were talking about again earlier, I had the, the opportunity when I was on John Paul Jones, when they were, when one of their primary missions was ballistic missile defense testing to take part in FTG-11, which was a very cool um, test involving GBIs, um, sea-based X-band radar, the the Tippy Two radars out of Wake Island, very very cool experience. Um, and now that I'm here at MPS, I've sort of been able to tie together in a like uh, stressing that education and really look at the why and the how behind those exercises. Um, because again, when I was DCA on JPJ, I had a very um, restricted view of concerns. I was the officer. The, I was the officer of the deck during that exercise. So all I really cared about was making sure we were at the right exact Latin long at the right exact second, so the guys from Raytheon down in CIC could start tracking everything right at the right moment. And then it was great because we saw all the all the squares on the A stab, and Aegis did a great job tracking everything, and it was really rewarding. But again, I didn't I didn't exactly know what was going on. Until I came here and started having some of my, my courses uh, in regards to uh, space systems operations, um, communication, satellite communications, mm. radar wave, like how wavelengths propagate, how wavelengths work, the relationship between bandwidth and frequency, all that stuff really made my experiences on the JPJ with FTG 11 click. 
And now I feel like I have a much better appreciation mm. for something I experienced two, two and a half years ago now. Yeah. Yeah. I, th I think, I think, uh, th boy, another great point. And, and, and so when, when we talk about education and we talk about, you know, things we do here at NPS, uh, this, this awareness and this expertise, you know, the, the United States Navy is unique uh, among other navies, and, and these include our allies and our adversaries, in that we do not put as much stock in education um, as those other navies do. Let me give you an example. Uh, I, I think most of the audience is familiar with other navies, such as the Royal Navy, for instance. In the Royal Navy, they do things a little bit different than we do. Um, they have kind of bifurcated or uh, separate tracks uh, for different kinds of officers doing different kinds of jobs on the ship. So, for instance, the, the, they have their engineers and the, they have their ops and weapons guys. And For instance, the engineers are professional engineers. Uh, the chief engineer on... Um, a British destroyer is, is of course a department head, but but it's different than on a on a navy ship. So he's he he really kind of like is completely in charge as a navy chief engineer is a U.S. Navy chief engineer is, but it's just kind of like a little bit different. And 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 one of the principal differences is that the chief engineer and his engineering officers are pretty much always graduates of um, uh, a marine engineering program. So, so they are degreed professional naval engineers and they know all the mechanical and electrical engineering stuff, the electronic engineering stuff, the control theory stuff of modern propulsion systems. And often they also, like graduates of U.S. merchant marine academies, uh, know how to do the maintenance. Uh, they, they know how to change out pistons on diesel engines, <laughs> overhaul AC and R plants. Um, they are really kind of more well-educated than the U.S. counterparts. The same thing's true on the weapons and operations side. It's it, we, Just recently, as part of the Meyer Scholar program, just before COVID hit, we had a thing here called the Maritime Theater Missile Defense Forum. It's uh, an international uh, cooperative uh, group of 13 nations which focus on uh, combat systems uh, interoperability both from a technical and an operational perspective. At least 13 nations, uh, representatives from 13 nations came here and, and, and once again, uh, all those officers uh, like the, the combat systems officers, they were all graduates of advanced technical education in things like electrical engineering, uh, uh, computer science, those kinds of things, and they, they spend their whole time doing those kinds of things. So, so their level of awareness and appreciation for what's going on is significantly higher. This, the same thing's true for our, our adversaries. So in the Russian Navy and the People's Liberation Army Navy, um, I'll give you an example. 
I recently read an article which um, noted that in the People's Liberation Army Navy, um, the officers on board ship, so they're, they're assigned to sea duty, they go to education courses at night when they're not on the ship in order to get smarter, more intelligent to know how and why, to be able to outthink their adversary, us. So this is really kind of a battle of the minds. Now, of course, we know we're best, but, but if we look in the mirror and think about what we have to do, could we be better? And I think the answer is unambiguously, absolutely. So you're, for instance, uh, in the space systems operations curriculum, increasingly, given the threat that we have with hypersonics, it is absolutely essential that we take the fight to space. And, and the reason is that given the nature of the hypersonic threat, the velocities, the stealthiness, the ranges, you can't get birth to death tracking of those hypersonic threats using terrestrial sensors only. You must go into space. Then, okay, so how much does the average unrestricted line officer know about space? I guess it depends on the individual. It always depends on the individual, but on average, maybe they would be better if they knew more. So, for example, one of our Meyer scholars, uh, James Kornowski, is doing his thesis on a ballistic missile defense system based in space. The stuff he has learned as an unrestricted line officer, as a surface warfare about space, he's probably one of the smartest in surface warfare officers when it comes to space that there is, particularly in application to a ballistic missile defense system and the detect, control, and engage aspects of a ballistic missile defense system that's space-based. Um, increasingly, our ability to communicate, to have um, uh, a naval operational architecture that enables distributed maritime operations. For the most part, in a classic traditional sense, it can only be achieved by space. And, and if you think far out, you think, well, who, who has the bigger picture in all these warfare areas better than anybody else? And, and the unequivocal answer is surface warfare officers. I mean, okay, jack of all trades, master of none, but but this, this idea that they have a, a more global, a greater understanding of all the warfare areas and how they integrate, I'd say a surface warfare officer who's been to space systems operation is the officer that we should take care of to be at some day the commander of the United States Space Command. Now, yeah, of course, we generally have Air Force officers, but, but I say, why not? Somebody who really understands all these warfare mission areas, how they integrate, et cetera. I mean, I think the surface warfare officers have a great deal 
to be proud of. Um, when you take a look at what they have to do, how they do it, the limited resources, the pressing urgencies, all those kinds of things. Wow, if you want somebody to get something done, call on a swell. That their work ethic is unbelievable. I mean, if you think about that. So, so yeah, space and swoes, it's a, it's a, I think it's a, a very, very important thing. And so you, you don't have to um, uh, be in the space systems operations uh, curriculum if you're a surface warfare officer. You can be a Meyer scholar. You can take the courses. You can come out of here being one of the smartest guys when it comes to space systems operations. And increasingly, surface warfare conducted from space all the way down to the sea floor. Really, really important to know about space. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that that that's some that's some very awesome insight, and I really, really appreciate you saying all these nice things about yeah. these various communities that I'm part of. Yeah. But well. but tremendous insight about the education. I, yeah. I couldn't I couldn't agree more. Um, throughout my albeit brief career so far, um, I've seen the dividends of education left and right, and I, I will speak a little briefly. Uh, about my first tour was in part of in the uh, the LCS program, mm. and I know there's a the, the tumultuous program and people are entitled to their various opinions of the program. But one thing I really enjoyed, and really benefited from, was the year of schools they yeah. put me through prior to setting foot on a ship. It was amazing, because then when I went cross deck to other legacy platforms, I noticed a difference. Yeah. The 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 ensigns that only had gone to BDOC and maybe a 3M course against me and my, my, my two other shipmates that uh, went with me um, who had a year of training in weather, tides, currents, two months straight in a simulator of ship handling, <laughs> a very advanced simulator, I might add. The LCS simulators in Newport yeah. and in San Diego are pretty, very cool, um, and it showed. And I was able to explain and utilize and understand at a different level than, than, the, than the other 1160s at the time around me. And I'm glad that they are making steps towards emulating that for all SWOs with now the official JOD course that they have come up with and the, the uh, improvements uh, to, to the BDOC curriculum, the ADOC curriculum, and the new training the SWO training pipeline that they're coming out with, um, I really like. I really like those changes, and I'm excited to see uh, the benefits from that and where it goes. Um, because yes, education is how we are going to win the battle of tomorrow, whatever that battle is. Yeah, I, I, that's another great point. I, I, the reason I say that is because um, in, in the my deep, well, I don't want to say bright past. I wouldn't say dark past, but 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 I was a. Uh, uh, FFG sailor, uh, the old FFGs, the Oliver Hazard Perry class, and um, we used to think at the time we didn't get much respect either. It was we had it easy compared to the LCS guys and the amount of uh, respect they get. But but it's kind of the same thing. It is it is that um, the training that we provide for LCS sailors is, uh, as you've just said, very very impressive. I mean. You do that for a year. Wow, uh, and and the the whole concept, like okay, if if you're in the off crew, well, then you're training somewhere. I suppose that's how it goes. And um, 
what what that really results in is this greater awareness. And and I think a, a very important message is that uh, we well understand this now. Uh, we're evolving in the right direction. So again, you have this combination of experience, great training, and great education. Then we truly do have officers who can outthink and outfight any adversary. It's really kind of important. So all things go in cycles, right? Sometimes we, sometimes we emphasize training. Sometimes we emphasize different parts of training, like right now. And I think appropriately, we're spending a lot of time on seamanship, navigation type training for the officers, all officers throughout their entire career, right? So that this is happening from a division officer all the way up through commanding officer and major command. Lots of attention to that. So if you think about um, previously, uh, at one point, how much was provided and the things that happened, well, we, d we don't want that happening in the combat systems world or the engineering world for that matter too, right? So, so we want to get ahead of that kind of curve. We want, want to um, just anticipate what would happen. So, so think about it, right? So what, it, I mean, the, th the thing all of us as students hate to hear, right? You're in class, teacher comes in, says, okay, everybody, take out a piece of paper, <laughs> right? It's like chills down your spine. Oh, no. <laughs> so, so we all understand that experience. That's the way it's going to happen out in the fleet. Except that instead of the teacher coming in and saying, okay, everybody, take out a piece of paper, it's going to be inbound hypersonic missile with no advance warning. Then what? Have you set up the combat systems doctrine the way it's supposed to be? Yes, there is combat systems doctrine in the Aegis weapon system, and it's really important. That is like a little baby step compared to artificial intelligence and machine learning. So who's going to make that happen? Who are the officers who understand that? If you think about the level of knowledge of the average unrestricted line officer for how doctrine is set up for their combat system. And, and then you think about that level of knowledge and then the level of knowledge of things like cyber and artificial intelligence. This, this goes right back to what Admiral Meyer and Admiral Burke were thinking about and, and their predecessors, right, that sent them to the Naval Postgraduate School, right? How many officers can talk intelligently about AI, machine learning, those kinds of things? Some can. Some can do it very, very well. But, but I would argue not enough. And where, where should they learn that? They should learn it at the Naval Postgraduate School. Um, I, I think that's really kind of important thing because once you get out there, it's too late to do it. And on, on artificial intelligence, I would say, you know, it's going to happen. It's, it's going to happen. I don't think it's going to happen in the short term. And I would also say that when it comes to artificial intelligence, there can be no artificial intelligence 
until there's a lot of human intelligence, right? You, you need to have people who really kind of understand this. For sure. Yeah. 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 So. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, cool. A lot of great points today. I really want to thank you again for your time. Um, the, the, the emphasis you put on education, I think, is tremendously valuable and all the more appropriate given our current location. Um, so, again, thank you, Captain Hammer. I really appreciate you for your time. Uh, and I'll yield the last couple of moments to you. I'll make it quick because uh, I've really uh, stolen the time away. But uh, I thank you very much. This has been fabulous. Uh, just an exciting time. And uh, a- another great thing about the Naval Postgraduate School, right? This, the Naval Postgraduate School, this is where the Navy comes to learn how to outthink any adversary. Okay. That should be on a t-shirt. Yeah. Outstanding. Awesome. (laughs) Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. Good luck. Thanks for joining us in the Trident Room. For more information about today's guests and topics, please visit the show notes. The Trident Room has been brought to you by the Naval Postgraduate School Alumni Association and Foundation. For questions, comments, and suggestions, please email us at tridentroompodcasthost at nps.edu and find us online at nps.edu slash Trident Room Podcast.